On today's show, our guest is Dr. Mark Spencer. Do you ever feel the need or the desire to just chuck it all in and head out into the big wide world on some crazy adventure? I know I sure feel like that from time to time. As a young kid, I learned to scuba dive when I was just 14 years old. To me, this was the coolest thing ever. And every time I went out, it was like my very own adventure. I always loved the ocean and to be able to spend extended periods of time below the surface had a big impact on my life growing up. And as an adult, it impacted me as well. I even found myself with a second job as a ship's diver when I was in the Navy. Our guest today has over 40 years of scuba diving experience. And when you look over his achievements, he's done pretty much everything that there is to do in the scuba diving world, including deep diving on mixed gases and cave diving in fresh water. Mark has balanced the demands of his practice as a dental surgeon with a passion for underwater exploration and photography. His documentation of subterranean freshwater caves and deep shipwrecks with a still camera has seen his work published in Australian Geographic and diving publications worldwide. In 1998, with the assistance of the Royal Australian Navy, he led a team of divers and maritime archaeologists to Turkey to confirm the Turkish discovery of Australia's World War I submarine, AE-2. And it was lying at a depth of 72 metres in the Sea of Marma. Mark's not only a deep diver, but he's a very deep thinker as well. He recently completed his book, Ocean of Self, and it examines the nature of consciousness using the ocean as a metaphor. Mark embodies the true go-all-in spirit of a modern-day adventurer, and I'm excited to be sharing his wonderful story with you here today. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Mark Spencer. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Mark. Welcome to the Go All In Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Rob. I appreciate it. Well, I like to start off all of my podcasts with a quick little get to know you quiz. It helps warm us up, calms the nerves down a little bit. And maybe for your friends and family at home listening in, they'll learn something about you that they don't already know. It's pretty random. It's in no particular order. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? Okay. All right, mate. Do you prefer cave diving or reef diving? Ah, good question. I'd say reef diving. I've been more of an ocean diver than a cave diver. But cave diving did satisfy my curiosity for the, the things unseen and, un, and normally unreachable. Nice, um, nice. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to get into that in, in the show here. And, <laughs> well, as I was doing the research for this, I was like, what do you ask a guy like this? You know, and I get to ask all the scuba diving questions <laughs> that I've never actually had to experience because this subject is pretty near and dear to my heart. I grew up, I must have been 13 or 14 years old when I learned to scuba dive. I was a diver oh. in the Navy and I've been around the ocean my whole life. So I'm pretty yeah. excited by this, uh, this show. Tell me, mate, next question. Would you prefer to dive for adventure or for leisure? Uh, it's, a, it's usually a bit of both, Rob. Uh, I think there's the adventure in me that uh, wants to find and discover things. But there's also, and, and some of those adventure dives are leisure dives as well because 
when I'm down there, wherever I am, whether it's on a deep shipwreck or on a, a nice, shallow, colourful coral, I feel pretty much at ease. <laughs> There's no one talking down there, you see. No, that's right. Yeah, you become very much, and I'm sure you'll relate to this uh, in your diving experiences, you become very much in the present. And so a lot of your worries and anxieties you've had uh, concerns about one thing or another that life imposes on you seem to disappear, don't they, when you go underwater? Absolutely. I would completely, completely agree with that. Would you prefer being out there taking photographs or being out there actually looking for something, Ken, on a, like a discovery dive? Well, I prefer to have a camera in my hand every time I go for a dive. Oh, every time you do it, yeah? Every time, yeah. If I go for a dive and I don't have my camera, I feel like something exciting is going to be going to happen <laughs> and I'm not going to be there to record it so I can say, look, I did actually see this. You've got to believe me. I've got fresh No one will believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel that once in a lifetime thing is going to happen. You know, a great white shark will come up and sniff my nose or something and go away and I didn't record it. No one will believe me. And I think that was why I got a camera in the early days because I'd see things underwater. I'd try to describe it and no one would be able to explain to me what it was or, you know, so yeah. camera in the hand. I've had a number of experiences out on my paddleboard and my stand up paddleboard um, with many sharks. And a couple of times mm. I've been fumbling for my GoPro, trying to take a, trying to pull it out of my pocket, you know, and suddenly my 14 foot paddleboard feels like a, 14 foot paddle pop stick and uh, you know, there's a couple of times I fumbled from my camera trying to get a photo of these sharks that are circling around me and it's like you know what don't worry about the photos just kind of enjoy the experience and yeah animals around yeah. you like that it's pretty pretty impressive you know it's something that you know even if I took a photo of it and showed it to somebody they go oh yeah that's cool you're crazy whatever but the reality yeah. is like I keep that for myself and it's kind of cool too actually you raise a very good point there and uh, you mentioned whether I sometimes miss the experience through taking photographs. It is true. And I was doing some whale photography in Tonga some years ago, and one of the Tongans said to me, he said, you know, you photographers are all alike. You get down there and your eyes are behind the viewfinder the whole time and you miss the experience. Mm. And uh, lo and behold, only a couple of years ago, I went out with a, a diving friend, just a pee and myself in his boat, way offshore here in uh, Coffs Harbour, and uh, there were just the two of us, so each one had to stay in the boat. And I'd, I'd dropped in the water first. And uh, there were uh, two whales coming from a distance, from the north to the south. And I thought to myself, you know, I think they're going to come into my path. Because I was just floating like a little bit of flotsam on the top of the ocean. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I could see these two whales heading right towards me. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. They're actually going to come up and, and look at me. And they did. And I had my camera already and I pushed the shutter button and of course the whole time I've just got my eyes behind the viewfinder and all I saw in the view in the screen were whale fins and you know snouts and mm -hmm. the, the two male uh, humpbacks and the camera wouldn't work. I had oh. fiddled with the controls. <laughs> so I was really upset that I didn't get the photographs, but at the same token, um, I was on a bus for a few days afterwards because I did put the camera down and I did just absorb the, the special experience that it was. And, um, you know, maybe that was worth more than having something to prove you, you saw them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think once you get to take photos of it, you always want to take more photos and you want to improve on your 
photography and that's kind of something that the art in photography always want to get better and better at it but the reality is the photos are really not that much different from the last ones that i took yeah and they're a little bit better yeah, they're yeah bit that's whatever you know like that, yeah that's a very good point as a photographer you're right you always think you can improve on it especially years ago um, i was photographing a, a wreck called the catathon off seal rocks uh, just north of sydney and uh, it was a project sponsored by australian geographic and the, the then editor of the magazine, Howard Whalen, this is after four years of working on the wreck, he said, Mark, it's time to close, you know, to finish this off. I said, oh, I just need a little bit more time. You know, I've got to <laughs> do this, got to do that. He said, no, that's it. That's it. That's and all you got. You don't get any more. Yeah. <laughs> Becca, my wife, also said that, no, you've had it, Mark. It's enough photographs. <laughs> Move on. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Nice one. All right, back to the quiz. Just a couple more. Do you feel the cold water? Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't have a lot of fat on me. You know, I'm, I'm 70, what, 71, 72 kilos. So I do, yeah, I feel the cold. And uh, when I'm diving on a shipwreck, which are usually in deeper water and usually spending longer on the bottom, I almost always have a dry suit. Oh, gosh, every time, right? <laughs> yeah, dry suit, which, of course, as you know, keeps you much warmer. But at the moment, my wetsuit's getting a bit thin. I think the, the air cells in, in the wetsuit are starting to compress and I'm feeling the cold a bit more. I need a or, new wetsuit. Or maybe you're just less tolerant of it, right? Nothing wrong yeah, with it. Yeah, getting older. Thicker one. I, yeah, a bit less tolerant as well. Not <laughs> like I was when I was a teenager. Yeah. After all the diving and all the boats and all the ocean stuff, can you actually drive a boat as well? Have you got a boat license? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I had a boat until, uh, well, Becca and I had a boat until... Uh, beginning of last year when I sold it. Oh, recently. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty sad. And it was, it was pretty sad in a way because it was my path to uh, freedom out there in the ocean. I could go where I wanted to and take friends mm. out and had a lot of pleasure with it. But just over the last few years, probably as I was concentrating on this book, which, you know, get on to, I found myself diving less. And, uh, yeah, so in the end we thought, you know, you're always spending money on boats. You, yeah. you just do. And we sold it. So it's a bit sad, the passing of an era. But so now if I go out for a dive, I'll go out on a charter boat or with a diving friend. Which is fun because there's no responsibility then, right? No, we're saving lots of money. (laughs) You can go diving more. Go on more trip. Well, that's the theory, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, typically you come home from a dive and, you know, you'd wash the boat down and you'd find you'd still be doing things the next day, washing gear. It's a lot of work, a lot of work then own a boat and go out diving and do everything at the same time. But it was good fun. Nice, nice. Awesome. What do you like to do when you're not diving? Are you thinking about diving? When I play golf, which I'm playing more of these days, I think about golf diving a lot because golf makes me so frustrated when I don't (laughs) hit a good shot. And I think, why am I out here? I could be having peace and tranquility in the ocean and here I am getting all frustrated. Yeah. With my terrible golf. <laughs> I like golf too, but I only like going to the driving range where you can smack oh. it as hard as you want or you can chip it and it doesn't really matter if you're kind of left and right of the fairway. There is no fairway. There's just something you're aiming at. It's not yeah. less frustration and more fun. It's fun to go and smack 100 balls. I like that. Oh, so true. So true. You know, you, you hit, hit a bad ball and you think, that's all right. I've got another one I can put down. The next one will be good. Um, but on the golf course when you're playing a game, it's Much a different harder. thing, isn't it? 
Yeah, very humbling, it? humbling sport. Very humbling. Oh, humbling. Hum- and I don't know why, you know, I am playing more golf than diving these days and I don't know what's going on there, but there's not a good explanation for that. We're going to flip that table. All right, last question in the quiz. Who would you say that your, your biggest influence in diving was or is? Oh, so I've got to think about that, Rob. Um, Sometimes we don't have an influencer. It's just a sense of adventure that we love for ourselves. I never had an influence yeah. in diving. It wasn't Jacques Cousteau or something like that. I mean, yeah. I love well, all that stuff. It probably Jacques Cousteau would have played a role because when I was younger, his TV series was on all the time. And amazing, um, right, at the time. There was nothing else like that at the time, I remember. No, it was beautiful. You know, and he had such a... a a great voice and he spoke such wisdom didn't he didn't he didn't just say this is a, yeah. a whale and this is a shark you know he he always had something more profound to say mm. um so i think jacques Cousteau, probably in early years as a kid it might have been the uh sea hunt adventures you know with lloyd bridges yeah. <laughs> but i think the reality is uh there was probably some visits to the manly aquarium when i was very young like my grandfather grandmother would take my sister and myself on the ferry ride across the harbour to mm-hmm. Manly. And I remember seeing in the aquarium and thinking, wow, you know, and then looking into the harbour and, you know, all you saw was the opaque surface of the harbour. And as a 10 year old, I knew there was, there were things under there and I, you know, I, I wanted to know, but I, um, and that, that's where that, I think that arousal to explore came, you know, cause I wanted to know, to know what was under the surface of things. When you went to the aquarium in the old days there, did they have the grey nurse sharks in the aquarium then? Yeah, they did. Uh, the grey nurse sharks and um, rays, stingrays of various. And, of course, as a 10-year-old, that's what you look at, isn't it? Sharks yeah, absolutely. With their yeah. pointy teeth. And yeah. I think back then they were called man-eaters. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't realise they're schooling sharks. They wouldn't know how to fly, right? <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, grey nurse sharks are pussycats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Mark. A little bit of fun to kick off the show. Will people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in? So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Yeah. All right, Rob. Well, I'll I'll, I'll pick one Go All In story that I have and and maybe another one where I went all in and then made the decision to go out. which might have a bit of a moral in that story too. Yeah. But uh, probably my, uh, I, I led the initial Australian expeditions to Turkey to examine the alleged discovery of the AE2 submarine, which was our World War I submarine that went through the Dardanelles Strait uh, in Gallipoli, in Turkey, in uh, 1915. And uh, I, I had never realised that until I saw a Sydney Morning Herald front page, only a small section was on the front page saying that a, a Turkish diver and museum director called Selçuk Kole, he had allegedly discovered the AE2 at 83 metres depth. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, that's amazing. You know? And uh, at that time, we had just been adopting uh, mixed gas technology, you know, with helium and everything to go down to those deeper shipwrecks because up to that point, 60 metres was about our limit for safe air diving. So we had employed this new technology to enable us to look at 83-plus metre wrecks. And uh, I uh, also had amongst my friends, you know, a professional maritime archaeologist, amateur archaeologist who was respected by the professional 
archaeologist for his deep shipwreck surveys and, and uh, the information he was able to glean from deep shipwrecks and uh, some other expert divers. So I thought, here we are, I've got the technology, I've got a team of friends, myself as a photographer, that really, how could you put together a better team to go over there to Turkey yeah. and examine this alleged discovery? So I rang the, the Navy, which you can imagine their sort of response, uh, you know, civilian Mark Spencer rings up the uh, Navy office in Canberra. Oh, I can go over there and help you get this information and, and confirm the discovery. And they said, oh, thank you very much for your inquiry. Um, we've got things in motion and we'll let you know if, it's, if it need be. And I thought, well, that's, that's not going to happen, you know. So um, yeah. I was working as a dentist in Macquarie Street in Sydney and one of my patients was a, uh, a journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, a political journalist. And uh, he said, oh, I told him about this uh, alleged discovery of AE2. And he said, oh, I'll introduce you to Bronwyn Bishop, who was the then Minister uh, for uh, Defence, Science and Technology, I think it was. In the Howard government, right, back in the... That, that was in the Howard government, yeah. that's right. And uh, so I thought, great, because as you would know, having worked in the, in the Defence Force yourself, You've got to go to the top if you want things to happen. <laughs> that's as far as the top as you're going to get to the minister. Yeah, yeah you go to the minister. That's right. So I, I had an interview with Roman Bishop across the road in Macquarie Street. Uh, oh, nice. In the state, yeah, in one of her offices. And I can't remember what I brought with me. Probably a copy of Australian Geographic or something with one of my shipwreck articles in it and, and uh, told her, you know, that we had all the expertise. So she asked lots of questions and... Um, and she said, oh, okay, I'm going to introduce you to uh, Commodore Mick Dunn, I think it was, in, the, uh, in Canberra, uh, Department of Defence. So I, I went down there with, uh, with another diving friend, one of the proposed team members, and uh, we had an interview with uh, Commodore Dunn. He asked a number of questions and said, oh, okay, we'll help you get across there. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we managed to... Uh, that was a go all in thing, you know, where I yeah. was really, I thought we had the ability and the expertise to do this, but we really needed help as well because it's, it's expensive to get people over there with all that gear and equipment. And uh, so the Navy, uh, well, the government through the Navy came forth with some money for the project, much, much less because we, we, we came pretty cheap, <laughs> much less than <laughs> sending probably a, a ship over there and you know, yeah, all the Navy uh, officers. Also, and, and actually I'll give Bronwyn Bishop credit for this, she then actively contacted some of the Navy defence industries and rallied their support. So we got, you know, $5,000 here and a few thousand dollars there from, Adds up. from various, yeah, it all added up. We, we got our $40,000 bit from the uh, media and I got a team of five people over there. And uh, in that first trip, this is 1997, before you go on there, Mark, I just want to yeah. jump in and, and maybe you could just tell the listeners what the significance of the AE2 submarine actually was in the Gallipoli campaign. Because if, yeah. if they're listening and they don't know what that was, maybe you could just give a bit of context for us. Yeah, and thanks for, for getting me to do that, Rob. Uh, AE2, we, we, back in 1914, a long time ago, Australia bought two submarines off Great Britain, AE1 and AE2. So that was Australian E-Class 1 and Australian E-Class 2. And the E-Class submarines were the latest in technology out of uh, the UK at that time. 
Uh, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. These submarines were battery operated underwater, diesel operated on the surface, mm -hmm. uh, were able to fire torpedoes. You know, they're pretty primitive. They didn't have uh, sonar and, and uh, they probably had some pretty fairly primitive depth indicators. And it was pretty dangerous being a submariner in them. So uh, we got these submarines before World War I started. So it was just coincidental that almost as soon as we got them, Great Britain declared war on Germany and uh, the, both the E-class submarines were then lent to the war effort. Now, while they were in both the submarines were with the uh, Australian Defence Force in New Guinea in, I think it was around October 1914, trying to clear uh, some of the, the German invasion of some of the New Guinea islands, AE-1 was mysteriously lost. It just never came back to port, back into uh, Simpson Harbour in Rabaul. And uh, they, looked for, they looked for all sorts of signs and they couldn't find it. So all we had was left was one submarine, AE-2, and that was lent to the, the efforts in Turkey. So it went up there. British submarines tried to get through the Dardanelles Strait. French submarines tried. They all had to come back or they were damaged or destroyed. AE-2, the Australian submarine, was the first of the Allied vessels to successfully go through the Dardanelles Strait into the Sea of Marmara and create some havoc. And that had a big effect on the way the campaign was being held on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, I should mention that AE-2 went through that Dardanelles Strait on the morning of April the 25th, 1915. No way. <laughs> uh, before the troops were actually being landed on the beaches. Yeah, right. And did it go through and come back out as well, or did it just go on that one mission and get sunk on that mission? Yeah, so what happened was that it spent a few days in there and then it accidentally surfaced. One of the things we discovered when we were diving is that the Sea of Marmara and the Dardanelles Strait has a freshwater layer on top of it, down to around 70 feet, 21 metres, Mm -hmm. And underneath that is uh, ocean water. So you've got lighter fresh water floating on the on ocean water. Yep. Yeah. So what happened was that the submarine, in trying to get away from an oncoming torpedo boat, descended too fast at an incline and hit this heavier layer of ocean water at 70 feet and deflected back up to the surface. And so it didn't want to go to the surface, but it, <laughs> it got surfaced again and it surfaced right next to a Turkish uh, gunboat oh, gosh. which fired three big uh, shells into the hull of the submarine. No one was hurt but once you get holes in a submarine you can't use them. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so the crew had to uh, abandon the sub, all uh, I think it was 31 of them and the captain Commander Stoker uh, scuttled it. He kept the shuttle, you know, the door from the shuttle door open and uh, let the water drain into the uh, submarine. And it sank. And got, off, got off himself, yes. Yeah. So there were no lives lost on the submarine, and it sank to the seafloor upright and sat there until um, our Turkish friend Stelchuk found it a year after. So that 1997 wreck we looked at, that wasn't the submarine. Yeah, so bring, <laughs> so bring me back to the story the first time you went oh, across. Okay. That was a false alarm, wasn't it? Yeah, so we dived on this deep wreck. It was pretty gloomy and dark and limited visibility down there. How deep? Swimming around it. Oh, 83 metres. Was that the yeah, first time yeah. you did it on the mixed gases? Yeah, yeah, that was our probably the, then the deepest dive we had done on the mixed gases. What was that like? Oh, oh, it was, 
was feeling pretty relaxed down there, but we couldn't stay for too long. As soon as we discovered that there are portholes on that submarine. <laughs> on That's that, not a on submarine. That, <laughs> all, yeah, on that, thank you, thank you Rob. Yeah. I know windows saw, on a sub, right? We've got no, to get out of exactly. this submarine. <laughs> yeah, especially back in those days and even today, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, once you see windows, we thought, no, nah, that's not it, even though it was pretty broken up. And uh, I took a picture of the bow, which wasn't a submarine bow, and we uh, came back. A, a TV crew was there. I can't remember whether it was Channel 9 or Channel 7. And poor old Solchuk had to face the cameras and say, he would find it, he'll, he'll keep looking. And the next year he did. The Navy were happy with the report. We, we, the, we had a maritime archaeologist with us. That was Tim Smith. And uh, he wrote a very good report of that expedition. The Navy were happy. And then the, the next year, almost to the, the day, I got this phone call from my Turkish friend. He said, I found the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. What, what was it the first time that you found it? Was it was a, a ship? What sort of ship? It, it, it was a, uh, we, we suspect, a cargo ship of some sort. And it might have been a victim of, uh, you know, some of that activity going on. Because the, the, while the AE-2 didn't actually sink, it did. one of its torpedoes did hit a vessel, but I don't think it sank it. It got to shore. Some of the British submarines that went in afterwards did sink ships. And we might have seen one of those. It did look like about that era, you know, and pretty broken up in the middle. So probably an explosion, uh, but just a, a, a commercial kind of ship. Vessel. And what that must have been a, a weird experience because here you are on your on your first mixed gas dive all the way down at eighty meters. And for the people that are listening that don't know anything about scuba diving, when you go out for leisure and scuba diving, you really don't go past about twenty five or thirty meters. That's kind of about the limit of what it is that you do. You're kind of very pretty safe around ten meters, and it's kind of fun about twenty. And when you're about 30 metres with not a lot of experience, it's sort of kind of, you know, the, you're outside what you should be doing unless you've got some experienced people there with you for many different reasons. And coming all the way to 80 metres on mixed gases, you're expecting to see a submarine. Everybody's really super excited by it. And you get down there and you saw a, you saw a ship. Yeah. You remember what you're thinking? Like you've got this like almost an unconscious bias thinking you're going to see a sub and you saw yeah. a like nothing. Oh, yeah, I was trying to imagine a submarine in it. Yeah, I, was, I was trying to wish it to be true. Um, <laughs> obviously, because we had a lot of people, you know, waiting, cameras and what have you waiting for us and, and a, a lovely Turkish guy waiting for us to come back with the evidence. So it was, it was pretty uh, upsetting at the time, but that was our mission was to yep. confirm it, its identity as the A2 or not. And, and the result was that Selshuk then was more determined than ever to find the submarine, and uh, he did find it successfully the next year. So he calls and, you a year later, and do you have to go back to the minister and go, hey, minister, we've got, we need some more money, can we go again? Yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I, I think I had wrong Cap in hand. phone number. <laughs> so we kept in correspondence, and um, also the Navy, and, and I had... I, I did know a couple of Navy people in, in Sydney, because that's where I was living at the time. So I, I actually got together with them at Garden Island and showed them some of the video that Selchuk had sent me. And it was pretty grainy and not highly conclusive, but very suggestive that he had actually found the AE2. Oh, he, so, dived, um, he dived on the actual wreck and sent you some footage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he, wow. He, he had a camera or one of his friends had a camera and it, as I said, it wasn't totally conclusive, but highly suggestive. So um, we went back there again with the help of Navy, same amount of money. <laughs> Did you have some clearance divers with you or was it just... No, support? no, 
no, we, we didn't. I, they uh, entrusted us, you know, with, uh, right. I think we did the job well the first time with the, the proper report and everything. And uh, I think the uh, Turkish uh, people, you know, the consulate and that were very happy with the way things. So I think all was good. And um, we did have to, mind you, we'd have to sign all sorts of documents that came from the legal department of defence saying that if we have an accident, you know, they're only sponsoring us. We're not being employed by them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was always a real possibility. All care and uh, no responsibility, right? Yeah, IDF. yeah that's, that's right. And it was a worry. It was a worry. It's always a worry when you're overseas, that sort of thing. Anyway, we dived on a, a shallower wreck in 1998. That uh, was 72 metres. Still deep. We still yeah. used, had to use, it's too deep for air. Um, so we still mixed our gases and then we... Uh, dived on this vessel and it was the AE2 and it was really exciting. Yes. Was the water clear when you first saw it or was it a bit murky and dark down there or what, what's it look yeah, like? Yeah, it, it was um, a bit murky, only about five metres of visibility mm. when I was down there. So 15 feet, you know, normally off New South Wales, we enjoy better visibility than that. Yeah. But the Sea of Marmara being an enclosed sea, somewhat polluted I suspect too, especially the, the top layer, that that first se- uh, 70 feet or 21 metres is really green and murky. Underneath that, it is clear, cleaner. The ocean water is cleaner, but a lot of particulate matter in it. And so on the bottom, it was dark because that fresh water up top cut a lot of the light down. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very dark green colour. <laughs> and, and you've only got five metres worth of visibility. You're almost on, on top of the thing by the time you're... Did you like, you're like, oh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly helped to have torches, you know, underwater lights, um, which we used. And um, you, you could just see, you know, gloomy kind of shadows. So your eyes could accommodate to it. But it really was a matter, you couldn't see the whole wreck in one, one visit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Sea of Marmara on the bottom, it does enjoy better visibility than five metres. On a subsequent trip, they must have had probably a bit more, like seven or eight metres. You could just see a bit more in some of the photos. But on our trip, it wasn't that fantastic. But it was good enough that I was able to photograph very identifiable features, you know, the bow with the anchor, the chain coming out of it. I was uh, going to say, how do you know that a wreck that's been sitting there for nearly 100 years is actually the thing that you're looking for? Obviously, it's, it's a submarine. That's the first yeah, thing. But how do you yeah. know it's that submarine? That submarine, well, it, it had all the – it was a submarine. I knew that, and I had looked at pictures of the E-class submarines. I think when we worked around uh, on the uh, forward part of the deck, they had a, like a little walking deck, there was a, a ramp or like a slope in the deck, which was very typical of the first 10 or so that came off the production line of the E-class submarines. After that, and I think there are some 70 or 80 submarines built in the UK, but we only had two, mm-hmm. um, they all had flat decks. So seeing that ramped casing, in the forward part of the, the vessel, that was significant. Yeah, that said, oh, early E-class submarine. Yep. And then went to the conning tower and it had the you know, typical conning tower, a submarine with two uh, periscopes and the uh, door of the access, the hatch cover was mm-hmm. left ajar, left open. Right. And we knew that Stoker had left it open. So it was still open. Still open. Uh, just sort of jammed on a, on a little, like a handle. So, you know, you know that a, a submarine that is sunk by a torpedo, you know, by an accident or whatever, the uh, hatch would still be shut tight. 
-hmm. The fact that it was open suggests that it was a scuttled vessel. So all these were very positive. We got, you know, we got video, we got stills pictures, uh, and and over a few dives, we covered. I think on the first dive, I might have gone to the forward part, the bow, bit of the conning tower. The second dive, back, you know. So we covered every single skerrick of the submarine, nice, um, and got a, a full picture of it. Mm. And for the people listening, when you're diving down to 70-odd metres, you're on mixed gases. Can you just explain why you need to be on mixed gases? Yeah, uh, Rob, uh, as you know, if we dive on air uh, down to around, well, even past 30 metres, as you know, the nitrogen in the air starts to have an effect like you've had too many martinis. (laughs) You get a little bit fuzzy in the brain. Mm And that can be a good feeling in some cases. You can feel kind of euphoric, happy. But, but depending on the type of environment you're in, it can also be unpleasant. You know, you can feel a little bit frightened or panicky. And that's dysphoria. So mm. that's nitrogen narcosis. They used to call it raptures of the deep. And it can afflict you uh, at any depth past, well, you know, 21 metres really. Um, mm. And some people even shallower. But after at 60 metres the nitrogen narcosis can get pretty heavy. And after 60 metres, even the oxygen in the air we breathe, because it's under pressure, just like the nitrogen's under pressure, every breath you take of of, uh, the gas, say it's air, those molecules of nitrogen, the molecules of oxygen are all packed in closer together because of the pressure. So every breath you take, you're taking in more nitrogen, more oxygen, and we actually get too much. You can get too much oxygen as well. And if people don't realise, they say, oh, oxygen's good for you. You need oxygen to, to survive. But you can get too much of a good thing. Mm-hmm. And too much of oxygen can overwhelm the body's metabolism and it goes into overdrive and you can uh, actually go into um, spasms and, and, and uh, basically go unconscious. And you don't want to be doing that underwater. So obviously you have yeah. mixed gases to solve those problems. What sort of gases are there in the cylinders that you have? Well, uh, what we do is we, we calculate how much helium we need, depending on, we say we, we want to reduce the nitrogen and the oxygen in, that, in the air we breathe, okay? So we say, okay, we can handle nitrogen to, uh, we might make it 30 metres um, because it's experienced divers, you know, that, that's, we're happy with that. And we want the oxygen to be a certain pressure that is safe, you know. So we actually work out how much nitrogen and oxygen we want at a particular depth. And then we say, okay, now we're going to add helium to make those, the, the nitrogen and oxygen have, you know, less of a contribution to that pressure of gas that we're breathing. And the helium is fairly inert. See, that's why we add it because it mm-hmm. doesn't have too much effect on the nervous system until you get to about 300 metres. So um, that's why we, we add the helium to the mix. And then on the way up, we're breathing. Well, back in those days, we're using different bottles of gas. So uh, cylinders of, uh, you know, with, with normal regulators, so bubbles and the usual mm-hmm. bubble diving. And we would then, on the way up, breathe increasing concentrations of oxygen to the point where in the shallower depths, we're breathing more oxygen than we would now mm-hmm. um, to help clear out the nitrogen and the helium to speed up our decompression. And would you have to do a these decompression days. stop on the way up? Yeah, even with these mixed gases with uh, helium added to the mixes, you still have to do decompression stops. Mm-hmm. And um, for a dive on the AE2 at 72 metres, if we were down there for, say, uh, 20 minutes, we were doing, um, I think it was about two hours of decompression. 
got a lot of you're in the water for a long time was it cold uh yeah it, it was pretty cold i think what was the temperature um i think it was something like 16 degrees down there which That's cold. definitely dry suit material if you're in a wetsuit you'd be shivering after a while yeah especially sure. doing that extra decompression it'd be a very unpleasant Nice one. Well, thanks for explaining that to us. It's kind of cool stuff. And back in the day when you were doing it, it's all calculated off tables and charts and manually. I'd, I'd assume that these days mixed gases is all about computers and there's a whole lot of cheat sheets that you'd have in, in relation to that. <laughs> well, that's, that's true, Rob. We did, we did actually use computers. There are some early computer programs. The calculations uh, that you do with it? Yeah, so we, did the, we used the computers to calculate and then we wrote it all down on, um, on little slates and things. But then, then the uh, risk computers came around in the mm. early, uh, when was that? Nine, that was 97, 98. So a couple of years later, we were starting to use risk computers, which actually calculated your, um, your, mix, your, your decompression for you. You, know, you mm-hmm. just had to feed in what the different gases were. So, yeah, computer technology was getting better and better. As you know, you know it's just been rapid in that time. So we, that made diving easier, but you still, as a backup, you wrote, wrote it down because anything electronic you have to assume could not work in a, in a water environment mm. and you always had to have backup. Backup was always important. Redundancy, as, as you know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, with, with a lot of things, underwater or military, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember back in the day when I learned to dive and I was just a teenager, it was like on a table there was like a, a table on a slate on a, on a piece of perspex that you'd have in your yeah. you control device and you just look at that and you just write on it with a pencil underwater or circle, whatever you needed to circle or do what you needed to calculate. But I never did anything much really deeper. I think the deepest dive I ever did was about, I don't know, 45 metres, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you would have developed you know, many skills, of course, that I've never developed. Um, but I know that uh, in the Navy and like water police and so forth, that uh, deep diving was not always part of the necessary no. skills, you know, because a lot of it was sort of harbour, retrieving bodies in the harbour and things like that. Yeah, I, ne- I never did any deep diving in the Navy. I think yeah. maximum's probably 20 metres, really, because, you're like as you say, you're in the harbour. I can remember being on, on the bottom of Kuwait Harbour doing a search there, and as we were, you know, you, you got a line on your arm tied to your mate to the left and to the right of you, yeah. and you swim along the bottom. And it's sand. It's not silty. It's a little bit silty, but it's mostly mm. sand. And I can remember swimming along the bottom and getting snagged. And what's that I'm snagged on? And then everybody like kind of stops. And, you know, yeah. if you've ever tried to get like five or six guys in a line underwater to try and swim in a straight line, it's most <laughs> like, it sounds simple enough to do. And, you know, if you stand uh. in an open space to do that, but when you get in the water, the evolution is like, dude, yeah. this, this guy to my left is a meter in front of me. The guy to my right is a meter behind me. And, you really got to kind of have your wits about you to, to get the evolution right. But I remember being snagged on something and swimming over to see what it was, and it was an RPG. Um, it's a rocket-propelled grenade. You know, somebody had fired the rocket-propelled grenade in the harbour, like they used it and then tossed it in the water, and there we were. And I was like, oh, and I just put it back where it was, you know, whatever, <laughs> and swimming along, and there was ammunition and there's magazines and there's, you know, well, obviously we're looking yeah. for explosives, but there's nothing. Well, it was like just the remnants of the war after the, after the first yeah. World War. You know, the big Still, that would have been pretty scary, wouldn't it? Having a rope snagged on something. I mean, not, you wouldn't have known it was discharged until you came up to it. 
And what if your your rope you know activated a switch or something? You know? I think maybe I'm just a little bit naive to all of that stuff that could be in there. Like, oh, yeah, whatever, we're going to go swimming in a harbour. I'm probably just complaining about it. You know what I mean? But uh, I, I can relate to that. I think when I look back at some of the dives I've done, you don't want to think too much about them ahead of time. No. You just go out there and do it. Don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. All right, coming back to your story, how many times did you actually dive on the AE2? We dived on over four days, one dive each day. So we had four dives on it. Uh, I think one day was a particularly bad visibility day and um, the visibility was only down to a couple of metres. Mm-hmm. And I decided then I'd just concentrate on photographing what was around the conning tower because I thought there's a lot of interest there. You know, this is where the hatch was and, and I, I started shooting in a bit closer to things to get a bit more closer detail. Mm-hmm. So we had four dives on it and they were very memorable. And I should say, Rob, that one of the most memorable events was to because submarines are very solid in their construction. You know, they've got to be to withstand the pressures course, that, yeah. that they're subjected to. <clears throat> and there's not a lot of big open faces. They're all rounded and, mm-hmm. and, and, and very solid. Uh, not many attachments. You know, they're, they're made for simplicity. And uh, AE2 was essentially intact. Right. So he had a relic of World War One. you know, mm-hmm. the Great War, that went down on that morning. The, the troops, well, a few days after the troops landed at Gallipoli, and um, I, I looked at it and I thought, this looks like a submarine that could just lift up and take off, you know, lift up from the bottom and take off because yeah. there was no ostensible damage to it. You the never saw where the rounds were, where they shot it up? Yeah, a bit hard because there was a lot of the growth, growth, you know, yeah. not, not long growth, but sort of algae and stuff. And, and we did see some holes and things, and, which could be shells, shell holes, but uh, there was a bit of deterioration at the, at the back of the fin, the conning tower. Uh, it had where uh, fishing boats caught their ropes and things. So they, they did tear that up a bit. And the, the bow had a bit of damage as well from fishing boats. But basically, it, it, you know, this was probably the most intact relic of World War I yeah. that exists. On the, on the know, ocean floor. Amazing. On the ocean floor. Because it was a scuttled submarine. It wasn't shot up. You know, it had, well, it had those few holes in it. Uh, sadly, I think uh, in a recent recent expeditions since my dives, the submarine has undergone a lot more deterioration mm-hmm. through, unfortunately, the the uh, inadvertent catching of nets and ropes yep. by fishing vessels in the yes. Sea of Marmara. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and what about Gallipoli and World War One itself, Mark? Do you have a, a connection to that at all from relatives who served in the war or anything like that? Yes, yes, I, I do. And it, my discovery of that came about as a result of that. No, sorry, <laughs> not AE2. Uh, years later, 2010, so we're going from jumping from 1998 to 2010, that maritime archaeologist, Tim Smith, that came with me on my trip, he set up his own expedition then to go back to Turkey to look at the maritime heritage off the beaches of Gallipoli. Mm-hmm. So, again, we got some sponsorship from one of the TV networks and they, they asked, asked as a team, do any of you guys have relatives that served at Gallipoli? Because it's a good and story, all, right? Yeah, well, it is because they, they thought then they could focus part of yeah. the story, not just on the underwater bit, but you know, yeah. what's happening, you know, a bit of the history. And uh, all of us said no, you know. And at that time, my mother was staying with us and we met with some uh, more distant relatives that I didn't even know of. And, and I asked them, I said, are you aware of any relatives, you know, on a mother's side 
that served at Gallipoli. And one of them said, yeah, I think uh, Hector Markey did. <laughs> so cut a long story short, it turned out that Hector Markey, who was my grandfather on my mother's side, my grandfather's um, older brother, mm-hmm. and an even older brother of theirs, uh, Arnold, had served in World War I. Hector went to Gallipoli as a stretcher bearer, and Hector and his, his older brother, Arnold, went to uh, the, the Western Front and served uh, in France. Uh, so they made it through the Gallipoli campaign and off to a, an even nastier campaign. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, I, I can go briefly into Arnold. He, he did get hit by a shell. He's, he, was, he had a, a, a person on a stretcher. They did get hit by a shell or killed but him. But that, I, I won't divert unless you ask me to, but we'll go back to uh, Hector and Gallipoli. He survived that, and he actually had some photographs of him standing at, oh, what's the name of the beach? Um, one of the beaches there, at, at, uh, they call it a, a beach named after a British beach. In, in uh, Gallipoli, Steve. in that area. Yeah, at Gallipoli, yeah. yeah. That, that was where the, the uh, ambulance station was, was positioned. So he was part of that ambulance being a, a stretcher bearer. And uh, he had a photograph taken. There was obviously a, a press photographer there. And he must have gotten on well with a press photographer because he got all these photos later on. You weren't allowed to take your own pictures. Yeah. And there's a picture of him standing with his cross on his uh, shoulder mm-hmm. and a, a donkey <laughs> at this, this beach. And we were able to locate that exact spot. Uh, not myself, but with the help of an Australian expat who lives mm-hmm. in um, Istanbul now. So you show him the photo and say, hey, this is where yeah, my relatives were. And he got this, this is my great uncle. And he said, oh, I can show you that spot. And he took us right up to it and, and it was very much more covered with uh, trees and shrub and everything. Mm-hmm. But he, 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 he just sort of checked around. He picked up an old medicine bottle. So how's that? I mean, that was, that was obviously an ambulance station. Yeah. And he said, within about three metres of where you're standing, three metres, this is where your great uncle stood. And yeah, so we took, tried to get photos that looked exactly the same. Did it work? It's a lot more overgrown now. Imagine back then. Yeah. Yeah. What was your experience of Gallipoli and, and that place there? That's somewhere that as a, uh, as a sailor and a soldier is somewhere I need to get to uh, in the next couple yeah. of years. And, you know, I want to go to Normandy <laughs> do that sort of tour. What, what was it like for you? It was great. And, um, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed out of the whole exercise was that we interacted very closely with the Turkish people over there, the Turkish friends, the divers and museum people. And there was a, a Turkish uh, diving doctor, medicine, a hyperbaric medicine doctor who looked after us. And uh, we became all became good friends. Fantastic. And um, I just discovered over there how, how similar we all are. You know, we, we think of different cultures, you know, that think differently to us and maybe they do in some respects. But all I saw was, uh, you know, how much we have in common. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I really loved the Turks, you know. I, I loved their sense of humour and, um, and, and it was reciprocal. They seemed to really like Australians, you know. Yeah. Nice. It's amazing. Here we were fighting with them in World War I <laughs> and uh, they think we're the, great, the best of buddies now. <laughs> so so it's, um, it was a, a great exercise in uh, diplomacy as well. Nice. I, I had an interesting experience um, when I first got out of the <laughs> army. Um, I, I I was working for myself, and I was down down the pub, and I met this guy. He he was a Turkish fella, yeah. and he had just got out of the Turkish army as well. 
And so I just got out of the Australian army and he just got out of the Turkish army and I just said g'day to him in the pub and we were just chatting and stuff. And I found out he was, he was a grunt and I was a grunt and we were just chatting and it was kind of like, what are the chances? And, and, you know, he raised it with me. I didn't raise it with him, yeah, like, yeah. you know, Glickley and World War One, and we were yeah, just chatting yeah. about that. We became really good friends and I'm still friends with him today, which is really cool. Oh, right. You know, one of the things that I think might, I mean, just might be one of those things that helped to encourage that kind of uh, friendship was in the museum over there. There's a World War One museum on the Gallipoli Peninsula. And uh, so visitors go to it and the Turkish visitors go to it. There's a picture of a, an Australian soldier handing water over to a fallen Turkish soldier. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a simple act of kindness like that in a time of battle and war it, it stays in the psych. And, and yep. I think the Turkish people have seen that picture. And, you know, and one act of kindness can have a, a big effect on how a whole nation thinks about Australians. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, 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 I, and I also think that, you know, Anzacs and Gallipoli and all of that stuff and the history of it there is a big thing for our nation, for Australia and New Zealand, of course. But yeah. it was also just as big a thing for the Turks. Um, yeah, it, oh, definitely, definitely. Maybe even lost. bigger in some respects, you know. They're, they're dug in, they're protecting yeah. their homeland from an invader, so <laughs> to speak, you know. Controversy or not, you know, that statement is that the reality is that was yeah. their homeland and we were there trying to get inside it and occupy it and get a hold of it. Yeah, yeah, and they realised that Australians didn't go there to take over their land or anything like that. They, exactly. they knew that, you know, the mm. context in which we were fighting and, and we understood, you know, theirs as well. And I think that's why... There wasn't a, a real core animosity from one to the other. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, but that's right. They lost some. I think about eighty thousand of their yeah, soldiers killed. Yeah, yeah. 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 Extraordinary. So, so bring me back <laughs> to uh, to Minister Bronwyn Bishop. You come back from a successful trip. What, what, what did Bronnie have to say for it? She must have been happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was on the TV and. Uh, did she take the credit for you, for your discovery? <laughs> No, look, she, uh, she was very good, but obviously it was a, a feel-good story, and I think politicians and all people these days, they'll grab a, a feel-good story. Of course. Uh, which is a bit of a change, isn't it, from all the things they're trying to defend. Yeah. And credit to her because her help and her trust in us, we, we were able to come back with a, a positive story in the end. And so she got on the TV and the radio, yes, and she uh, made some announcements, and I think that was good for her, of course but it also gave some good publicity to our project. There's some really interesting things that had happened there as you, t- as you recount that story. <laughs> and as I was doing a little bit of research for this interview, one of the things that struck me the most was the, the adventure of it all and mm. the discovery and going after it. And, and I guess when you're kind of caught in the middle of organizing and logistics and all of that, and you, you've got to go and do it, there's a lot of work to do. You know, it's easy for me to romanticize it, but it's mm. just plain freaking hard work when you get there and it's dangerous and all of those yeah. sorts of things. Why do you think today, I don't know about you, but yeah. I don't see as much of that adventure style stuff going on today in the modern world. Why do you think people don't go after it as much as what they used to once upon a time? Yeah, that's a really good, actually you're making me, I haven't really given much thought to it, Rob, but um, some, some answers come to mind. We are seeing less divers come into the deep diving, you know, activity. Um, maybe in today's world, the younger people just have so many distractions through through the uh, media. Maybe they're doing a little bit of everything, you know, whereas and they're getting too dis- diverse and too distracted, not focusing on just 
setting <laughs> ambitions and, and goals, I don't know. I might be doing them a disfavour there. Uh, I know there's a hell of a lot of talent, you know, in the in the teenagers coming through. You just got to look at YouTube clips, but maybe there are too many distractions these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you got yeah. any ideas? Do you- no, I just, you know, as I was doing the research, I, it just struck me that it was such a, a big thing that you did and, and finding that after 100 years and the adventure and the romance and all of that. But, you know, I, I don't think you need to go on a, on a wreck diving hunting expedition looking for something from 100 years ago to have that mm. sense of adventure and to get outside. I mean, you can dive on wrecks that are in the local area and off the coast of Australia, it's pretty much everywhere. And scuba diving yes. is just one of those unbelievably fantastic activities that I think everybody should experience if they're so inclined. I mean, it's not for everybody. That's for sure. If you've got some sort of inkling that that's something you want to do, then, man, I would just so encourage people to do that. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world to do. Well, even I'm sure you'll agree with me, even just putting a snorkel on and breathing from the surface and peering underwater takes you to that different world. You know, immediately you're in that, world we talked about where your senses are all changed and there's silence and you're in the moment and Mm -hmm. and you're looking at all this diversity of life and it's all around you and um everyone comes back with a great thrill don't they absolutely absolutely and you've dived on a, a number of wrecks on the new south wales coast have you discovered any other wrecks look i i've never been a an avid photographer uh i've never actually discovered wrecks myself but what i did was I teamed up with friends who were good at discovering wrecks. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them who's sadly passed away now is uh, John Riley. He was the amateur archaeologist I referred to. So wasn't a professional maritime archaeologist, but uh, a stand standout guy in his ability to really know how he knew steamships, he knew how they broke up underwater. He could look at a, a thing sticking out of the ground and knew what it was. You know? Amazing. Yeah, and he was very good at finding wrecks. He was good at researching. He'd go down to the archives in Canberra and and look up all the research and find out, you know, the history. So he and I became friends. I was the photographer. He was the the archaeologist (laughs) and the finder. And he would say, we came back from the AE2 expedition in 1998. He said, well, now we've done that, I want you to come down with me and and our other friends. And uh, I think I, I know where the wreck of the uh, Tasman is, off the Tasman Peninsula. And uh, sure enough, a year later, we went down there with a team of uh, some of, some from the AE2 trip and a couple of others, and we dived on a brand-new shipwreck for the first time. We were the first wow. divers on it. Fantastic. And it was called the Tasman. It, it too, believe it or not, was 72 metres down. <laughs> um, yeah, but much, much cleaner water. It was, it was much nicer diving on that wreck. Did you get some um, good photos? I did. I did, yeah. With with great visibility, you know, so you could see whole parts of the wreck. The water was pretty cold down in Tasmania. Oh, absolutely yeah, right. Pretty chilly. Dry, <laughs> dry suit or not, it's still cold. Oh, even a dry suit. I remember decompressing and thinking, I can't wait to get out of the water. You know, how yeah. soon can I get out? Because I'm starting to shiver. And yeah, just got to hold on there a little bit longer, right? Tell me, do you, yeah. have you ever dived on any of the World War Two wrecks in PNG or in the Solomon Islands or anything <laughs> like that? Yeah, I have uh, in both those places. Solomon Islands is is great. Uh, Truck Lagoon, mm-hmm. um, of course, all the Japanese ships were congregated in Truck Lagoon, and the uh, American Air Force bombed them uh, and sank. I think there's some forty or sixty wrecks down there. You know, quite yeah, amazing. amazing right? 
Yes, so Truck Lagoon is a great reminder of World War Two. Uh, Solomon Islands, yep, there's a, a submarine there in the bottom sound, I think it was called. Uh, I, I dived on a submarine on a reef in the Solomon Islands. I'm not yeah. sure if it's the same one. I, I don't recall what it was called. I was, I think I was yeah. 15 at the time, maybe, and you yeah. swim down, down the side of this reef. It's kind of, for the people listening in, it looks like a, like a hill, and you're kind of, you know, the reef's poking up like a, like a triangle out of the bottom from the sand and the submarine was lying on its side. It must have been 25, 30 metres. That sounds about the one maybe I dived on. Yeah, Japanese mini submarine. And I I remember swimming down to the bottom of it and just kind of (laughs) turning around and looking back up at it and spectacular visibility in the Solomon Islands, of course. And as as a young, impressionable teenage kid looking at that, thinking, wow, and then seeing a whole school of barracuda swim past in front of me like that and there's a submarine there and just a really vivid memory in 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 my life and i that really stayed with me but i can also remember diving in the solomon islands and for the people that don't know they're volcanic islands that come out of these trenches in the ocean and most of the diving there was drift diving and reefs and it wouldn't be Mm. more than probably 20 meters and i remember the guy that took us out in these places he'd They'd, they'd drop us off and I'd go out with the dive master and we would just drift around the corner on the reef. And I remember one particular dive, there was, we were you know, going down the wall of the reef to about 20 metres down and then you're on the bottom and there's kind of sand and you turn around and look behind you and there would have been, I don't know, maybe four or five metres of sand behind you. Like It looks like it's flat. And I remember swimming to the edge of it and looking over the edge into a trench that must have been like, I don't know, I was, it must have been... 55 kilometers deep when I looked at it. That's how I was like, oh my God. And you think the sea monster is going to come up and pull you down into it. But the black depths of the ocean like that in the tropics is something to behold. That's for sure. So incredible, oh, incredible experience. Oh, I can relate to everything you're talking about. You know, just the, the life in those areas, the nice warm water. You really feel like you're in the in the womb of uh, something that feels very familiar almost, doesn't it? You it's amazing. Identify it? Yeah, incre- incredible places. Yeah. And, and I've never really dived in any other places in the world that were like that. I mean, Sydney Harbour is pretty good. Uh, some of the some of the clearest water and some of the most beautiful dives in every, anywhere in the world that I've been, but certainly not like in the tropics of the Solomon Islands or anything like that. No. I dived in Palau in uh, yes. up around Malaysia. Yep. Yeah, that yep. crystal clear water and <clears> super <throat> yeah. warm and, you know, diving in a pair of board shorts kind of nice. Yeah. yeah, I know. Was it Mike Carlton? You know the the uh, radio and the radio announcer, newspaper journalist. Yeah, he uh, he wrote a book on the HMAS Perth, and that was in Indonesian waters. So we went over there four five years ago with a TV uh, network to kind of talk about that wreck because the current side of the launch of his book, and he was the uh, the narrator, the presenter. So that was that was good to get to know him a little bit. That wreck, uh, the Perth was in about 30 metres, I think it was. So not super deep, but uh, really warm water. It's, it's much nicer diving in warm water. So we were also in just protective, whatever, you know, shorts and things, but just protective wear. Yeah. But the visibility wasn't that good, and it was, it was pretty scary diving, actually. <laughs> yeah, when it's a bit dark and yeah, <laughs> yeah. not such great views in an old wreck like that, it's excellent. Yeah. So speaking of books, you've written a book as well, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Well, um, the book, which I am very excited by, Rob, it's called Ocean of Self. Now, it it does sort of summarise a lot of my diving experiences over many decades, but it's not just a book on diving because 
then it would just be another book on diving. And there's heaps of divers have written books on diving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I saw this, I saw that. These are my pretty photos. Way back about 25, 30 years ago, I was fascinated by the correlation of my experiences diving in the ocean on shipwrecks with animals or whatever. And also uh, I learned to meditate not long out of university. So I was only maybe 31. Uh, I think it was 1980, 1981. I, I learned to, uh, no, sorry, about 27 something. Mm -hmm. I learned to meditate on the basis that uh, this is transcendental meditation on the basis that it was supposed to improve your health, improve self-actualization, you know, make you more efficient, be a better business person. And, and I was a young dental professional and I thought, oh, it all sounds good. <laughs> I'll give it a go. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll give it a go. <laughs> That's right. So I learned this meditation thing. And, and really, there's probably, not that I was overtly aware of it at the time, but I've probably lived with a little bit of anxiety in my life, you know, just underlying I'm a happy guy and, you know, uh, love life, but, but, you know, we all deal with these little things, probably inherited. Um, so maybe that meditation was good for that as well. Mm -hmm. But what I found, though, was that the, the whole meditation experience was very similar to diving in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So if I can recount a couple of things, you, you feel a sense of timelessness. Yeah. So you're very much in the moment. So time disappears, you know. So like I said, if you've had a worry about something, well, that was something that happened yesterday or the day before. It's not now. Mm -hmm. you know, so when you're underwater, you, you're just totally removed from that. So it's a sense of timelessness. Underwater, silence, but a, but a, but a really nice silence. So kind of a wakeful, inner, inner wakefulness, but a silent wakefulness. You're very much alert. And you also feel a sense of connection to things around you. Oddly enough, that might happen with years of diving. A mm -hmm. sense of uh, connectedness to, even though you're a, an alien to the world in, in some biological respects, I used to feel this sense of connection and all the, and also a sense of uh, a boundlessness, you know, like there's just no boundaries this ocean. And with that came a sense of great freedom and wonder. All this is a freedom, wonder, mm -hmm. uh, unboundedness, timelessness. And these were all experiences that I had in meditation. And I thought, well, what's going on here? You know, and this was the scientist in me. You know, this is, a, mm -hmm. this is that young boy that looked beneath the surface of the ocean and wondered what's underneath the surface, what's underneath the, the superficial things in their life. And so I was determined to somehow write a book that would explore the nature of consciousness, the nature of our inner self, using the ocean as a, as a metaphor. And uh, I tried... Those 25 years ago, putting the first words to paper, and I, I just couldn't do it. You know, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd write a chapter, tear it all up. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. And, yeah, and, and I thought, I'm not sure I can do this. You know, it's too ethereal, too out there, you know. Yeah. But it was something that I felt, you know, needed to be addressed. And so it, was, it stayed, stayed with me all this time. And uh, I'd even give talks to the, the Australian Geographic Society, but I asked them to give a talk on my diving experiences. And I would, uh, you know, with, with audio visuals, with slides and music, try to talk about these more philosophical things. And I wasn't successful. I, mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, <laughs> to, to articulate it, make it material, you have to be pretty clever. So I thought, now I've really got to make sure I deliver this topic. In a, in a, you know, I need to develop some skills. 
Finally, the beginning of last year, my book came out. You know, I spent about three years and I was happy with the final product. I read it, of course, many times. And I thought, yeah, look, I think I've got something here that articulates as well as possible uh, the concept of an ocean of consciousness. Instead of our awareness being a product of the brain only, I'm saying, yes, the brain is necessary for experience, a nervous system, of course, but that our essence, our sense of self is something deeper than that. And that's what I was exploring in the book. I was comparing yours and my individual consciousness operating through different nervous systems as being like waves mm -hmm. you know, on one common ocean of consciousness. And uh, it sounds all very deep and philosophical, but that's why I wrote a book about it, to try to develop those themes. And uh, that's called Ocean of Self. And, it sounds um, it sounds really deep and philosophical, as you say. And, and yeah. you know, the way you describe your experiences in meditation to diving and anyone that's dived or meditated has had similar experiences. And, and I could mm. I would echo what you described as well. I can remember just some, some of the most vivid memories. I can't even remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday, but I could recall mm. some of the most vivid diving experiences that I've ever had in the swimming into like a like what you think is a swim through in a cave in the tropics only at sort of eight, nine meters, not very deep and no. stopping, you kind of swim through the entry of a cave where you're on your tummy as you're moving forward and this thing opening up to this big giant cavern and above you, it's not completely covered. There's holes and the, and the light coming through and standing up like standing up as if you're not in the water yeah, yeah. and just <laughs> dump all the air out of your BCD. So you're standing there and just, looking around and you're like, I'm just completely in another world. And, and you have yeah. these otherworldly experiences, even though you're an alien and there's some adventure there, there's some exploration there. There's something happening there in my conscious yeah. mind and these experiences that I've, that I've had. And even though that's probably maybe three minutes to five minutes of my life that I took in, it's mm. something that stayed with me and just a, a really deep and meaningful experience there. And, and yeah. I kind of get where you're going with the theme of oceans of self. I, I can feel it. It resonates. Yeah. With I've experienced right. those same things as you. Yeah, that's fantastic, Rob, because uh, so many of my, even my hardest, most down-to-earth, you know, wreck diving friends have said, and I've heard them say, there's something special about diving on a shipwreck, you know? Yeah. I'm not quite sure what it is. There's something special. I'll put my finger know? on it. I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to articulate. And uh, explorers, whether they be under the sea or, um, uh, and if I could quote uh, here, I, I wrote this one down because I, I thought maybe this could come up. So, so Walter Herbert, he was a polar explorer, a British polar explorer. Yep. It's thought these days that he might have been the first one, his team, to actually get to the North Pole, even before Rob Cleary. And uh, he wrote an article in the Journal of the Explorers Club, uh, which I'm a member, and he said, the time has come for the next generation of explorers to shift their focus from the physical poles of the past towards spiritual goals. I know for a fact that the third pole, apart from the two, you know, North and South Pole, the third pole, the mystical one, <laughs> is far more elusive than the other two. So there is the challenge. Go find it. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that back in, uh, I think it was uh, 2004 or something like that. And I thought, for heaven's sakes, here's, a, here's one explorer 
that can relate to what I'm talking about, and I'm not alone, you know. I didn't feel so, <laughs> alone. so I actually emailed him because being in the club, you know, I had a directory of all the. So I had Sir, Sir Wally Herbert's uh, email, nice. and I communicated with him. And he said, oh, he actually wrote a lot more than that, but it was edited out by the editors and he was going to send me all the information. He sent me some information. He passed away a few years later. But um, that gave me a bit more confidence because yeah. you, know, you talk about go all in. I, I knew that what I was trying to tackle, and even he said it was a challenge and elusive, I thought it was possible to try to explore spirituality without it being religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not talking about being a, on the pulpit bashing things, bashing knowledge, or, yeah. um, but just exploring what I think is part of our nature, something that we are aware of but maybe can't articulate. And I'm doing it through a path that explores the nature of consciousness. So I'm saying our being is based on the fact that we think. You know, we think because we have a brain. Is consciousness all the brain? Is there something else? And my book goes into all that, and it probably, you know, but... I won't, I won't get lost without your questioning me, mm-hmm. um, but the book goes into all that. And I think it provides a, um, if not provable, a fairly, what to me seems sensible way of viewing consciousness and, and through that, a spiritual dimension, if you like, that we all have. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure talking today on the podcast. If people want to connect with you and learn more about your book, uh, where can they connect and where can they find out about your book? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, www.oceanofself, all one word, dot com. So oceanofself, all one word, dot com is the website. And, and that links with the Facebook page too. So um, oh, I always put stuff on the Facebook and that goes to the website. And that's got all the links to the, you know, if you want to read. The book's only available as an e-book at the moment, but hopefully I'm trying to uh, get a crowdfunding thing going to do paper books soon. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'll make sure that that link is included in the show notes. And that just about wraps it up for the Goal In podcast today. Um, If you haven't already subscribed to the show, just pop open your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button. And if you like what you heard today on today's show, make sure you leave us a review because that helps out a boatload too. Don't forget to follow us in all the socials on Facebook, Instagram, and in Twitter. And don't forget to join in on the Facebook group. Just look for Go All In and add yourself to that group and we'll add you right back in. There's a whole lot of people in there. There's about five or 600 people in there all going all in on various different things in their life. So come on over and join in there as well. Well, that wraps it up for the show today. Thanks again, Mark, for coming on, mate. We really appreciate you spending your time with us today. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much, Rob. I very much enjoyed it. All right. Bye for now. See ya.